So let's start with the reading of John 3, 16 to 21, and then we'll open with prayer before I begin. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that they have done have done as that they have done has been done in the sight of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together this morning again to to look at your word, to hear your holy spirit um, work through all of us in our songs, our prayers, and now in this sermon. Uh, Lord, please have the message that you have ordained be given out despite what I have written here, and that this be uh, a message that brings hope and, and um, application into our lives in a mighty way for your glory, not for ours. In Christ's name, amen. Well, on Sunday afternoons, usually football season, many Americans watch TV, uh, watching football, and you may notice that uh, there's a type of gospel witness that goes on in those games. Effective, maybe, maybe not. But you know, it started in the end zone. The guy that put up the sign, John 3.16. That was back in, like, I think the late 70s that started. It, I was an adult, but I wasn't well into adulthood at that point. And I remember seeing it then, as I no doubt you have seen since, at least. The idea is obviously that people either know or will wonder about the reference being John, uh, the Gospel of John 3, chapter 3, verse 16, and hopes that great things would happen when people would simply pick up the Bible and read this one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Some people, though, may say Genesis 1-1 is the best verse in the Bible, or the most important. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Others say the Ten Commandments are more important. Sufficient as it is to learn that our world has a creator and to know what is right or wrong, is those truths can be found outside the Bible. We can see in nature the glory of God's creation. We have an imprint of morality in our hearts, not that we always follow it correctly. But ask a teenager, is that fair or unfair? Teenager will know what's fair and unfair. So nature by itself doesn't reveal the maker in its full attributes. But John 3.16 presents a message that cannot be known apart from the Bible. How does God feel about us? What has he done, if anything, to help us? There is no greater question and no more glorious answer than we find here in John 3.16. Bruce Milne says, That is a uh, masterly and moving summary of the gospel, cast in terms of the love of God. 
Martin Luther called the verse, the Bible in miniature, because it contains the heart of God's entire message. That is why many consider John 3.16 the greatest verse. Another way to see the greatness of John 3.16 is to point out that it presents the Bible's greatest theme, God's love for us through Jesus Christ. Naturally, John is not the only biblical writer to extol God's love this way, and we can profit by looking at how others do so. Paul says that God's love is great. In Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We tend to overuse the word great in our society today. We said we had a great time when we enjoyed a party, or that was a great ball game. If God blesses us even a little bit in our ministry, we claim a great success. But when overused like this, the word loses some of its force. In fact, at times, in general use, it becomes somewhat mundane. But when the Bible says that God's love is great, the Holy Spirit means it. We see that God's love for the world is great and the amazing care he exercised in creating it. Nature reveals the marks of the most loving craftsmanship. The Greek word that Paul uses for great, and I think this is how you say it, Pauline, P-O-L-L-E-I-N, is used to describe an overflowing harvest or intense emotions. God's love truly deserves to be called great in that respect. Paul elsewhere describes God's love as unfathomable. In the third chapter of Ephesians, he prays that the believers, quote, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, end quote. What we are to comprehend about the dimensions of God's love is that they are beyond measure. It's possible to exhaust the love of a spouse, friends, or even parents, but it is not possible to exhaust the love of God. Frederick Lehman wrote, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches the lowest hell. God's love is joined, although, to all his other attributes. It does not stand alone. great mistake many of us make is to choose or select one aspect of God's attributes over another because it fits our views better. What we need to do is look at what the Bible says. And as an example, some say God's love is better than God's holiness. But we must never think that or, we must, or, we, or that we even must choose between two or three. God's holiness is a loving holiness, and God's love is a holy love. Our generation has spoiled much of the idea of love, particularly in the area of romantic love, by joining it with sin. But God does not and cannot do that. His love is joined only to his holy purposes. And his love for us will have the ultimate result of bringing us to a glorious, holy, sanctified condition. Pastor Richard Phillips, and let me pause here for a second, much of this uh, sermon is based on Pastor Phillips' uh, commentary. It's a John uh, 1-10 edition. I think it's a Reformed Commentary series. 
though now it eludes me the exact series. But I, I mentioned that because I want him to have the credit for the basis of what I'm saying today, although I have interjected a few of my things. Those will probably be the things you can avoid. Okay? <laughs> Pastor Phillips says, when I am counseling couples before their marriage, I often hear one of them, and it's usually the bride, he says, I never want to change him. He says, I always pause, I lean forward, and I say, but you will, you will. God's love never says, I don't want to change you. Because God's love is holy. He intends us to change. And he intends to change us himself by loving means so that we will become the holy people that we were always meant to be. God is almighty, and therefore he has an almighty love. This means that he is able to do all that his love desires of us. Theologian J.I. Packer writes that God's love has a, at his heart an almighty purpose to bless which cannot be thwarted. Who then can separate us from his love? Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm Romans 8. Moreover, God is unchangeable, and his love is unchangeable. Puritan uh, John Owen wrote, Though we change every day, yet his love does not change. If anything in us or on our part should stop God loving us, then he would long ago have turned away from us. It is because his love is fixed and unchangeable that the Father shows us an infinite patience and forbearance. If his love was not unchangeable, we would have already perished. God is eternal, and so is his love. Paul teaches, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God loves love for us originated in eternity past, and the end flows to eternity future. In Jeremiah, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And Isaiah, for the mountains made apart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Moreover, as God is sovereign, therefore so is his love. Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. PCA pastor James Montgomery Boyce wrote, God's love is a sovereign love. His love is uninfluenced by anything in the creature. And if that is so, it is the same as saying that the cause of God's love lies only within himself. In scripture, no cause for God's love other than his electing will is ever given. This was God's explanation to Israel for the love that he showed the people in the Exodus. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you that you were chosen. Finally, we should note that God's love is infinite. There's no greater proof of this idea than John's statement that God loved the world. 
There is an infinite distance between God and this wicked world. But God's love is infinitely great to span that distance. In fact, God tells us in Isaiah, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But he still loves us. Our world has rebelled against God, flaunting his authority and mocking his way. Most people reject God's rule over their lives. Paul notes in Romans 1, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Isn't that an accurate description of the world today? The distance between us and God is infinite in every way. Yet God still loves the world. And when John speaks of the world, quote unquote, he is being intentionally provocative. Old Testament Jews believed that God loved them, but rejected the idea that God loved anyone else. In fact, I didn't bring this into the reading, but a few verses earlier, I think it starts with uh, 3.10, Jesus is talking to um, Nicodemus. And he says, aren't you a leader of the Jews? Aren't you a leader of Israel? Why don't you understand these things? That was the mindset of the Jews, that God only chose them. Here John is now broadening that out to the world. Not to the wicked part, but to every tribe and every nation. Um, Leon Morris explains this. It is a distinctively Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all people. His love is not confined to any nationality, group, nor spiritual elite. John does not say that God loves religious people or that God even loves Christians, but that God so loved the world. This is why the message of Jesus Christ is good news for everyone. Romans 5, 8 tells us, God shows, us love, shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This brings us to a particular point in John 3.16 that stresses God's love is a giving love. The Greek language has four words for love. Again, I apologize for pronunciation. The first is storage, which is a family love. Whatever they think of each other, family members are to be loyal and love each other. The second is eros, which is the romantic or sexual love. The third is philos, or phylos, which is the love of friendship or attraction. The word philosophy means love of wisdom. But the New Testament stresses a fourth kind of love, using the Greek word agape. This is a giving love. It is not based on what we receive, but on what we give. Agape love has this classic definition here in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The greatest of God's love for the world is most clearly seen in the gift that he gave, his only son. John says not merely that God loved the world, but that God so loved the world that the word so indicates both the manner in which God loved the world by giving his son and the intensity for the love of God for the world. How do we measure God's love for us, though? Well, there's only one way, and that's by calculating the infinite value of his precious son, Jesus Christ. John refers to Jesus as God's only son. 
We are undoubtedly intended to reflect on this truth in light of our love for our own children, which actually seems very appropriate due to today is Mother's Day. And again, happy Mother's Day. Even though we are corrupted by sin, however, it is natural for us to love our children with a great intensity. Mothers exhaust themselves, rocking babies to sleep and defending teenagers. Fathers spend long hours fixing bikes, playing games that they would have no interest in if it weren't for the fact that those were for their children. Parents get worn down with extra jobs to help clothe, feed, and educate their children. To neglect children, sadly to say, happens all too often in today's society, is so obviously wrong that that's a universal problem. Human nature says no greater love than that of a parent for his or her child. And Jesus Christ is God the Father's only son, his child. God many times spoke of his love for his son, and Jesus often basked in the love of his father. So in giving his only son, God has truly given his very heart. John Flavel, um, preacher, Puritan preacher from the 1700s, asked, Who would part with a son for the sake of his dearest friends? But God gave him too and delivered him for enemies. Oh, love unspeakable. God could not possibly love this world more or better than giving his only beloved son. In saying that God gave his only son, John corrects a terribly um, common mistake in thinking about God the Father. Because Jesus died to satisfy God's justice, some think God's love is caused by Christ's sacrifice, and that it was either half-hearted or reluctant. But John 3.16 says actually the opposite. R.C. Ryle says, The gift of Christ is the result of God's love to the world and not the cause of his love. To say that Jesus loves us because Christ died for us is wretched theology indeed. But to say that Christ came into this world in consequence of the love of God is scriptural truth. God loved this evil world not after but before the Savior came to turn our hearts back to heaven. God's love is the reason that we can be forgiven, that we can be born again, and inherit eternal life. When, God said, or when John says God gave his only son, what exactly does that mean? According to the Bible, the Father sent the eternal and glorious Son into this world to take on our mortal nature with all the weakness and suffering that this is involved. Jesus states 39 times in John's Gospel that the Father sent him into the world with a mission of salvation. God sent him to reveal his truth, to proclaim the good news of salvation, and especially to do the work needed for the salvation of those who believe. J.C. Rowell also says, Christ is God the Father's gift to a lost and sinful world. He was generally given to be the Savior, Redeemer, the friend of sinners. To effect this, the Father freely gave him up to be despised, rejected, mocked, crucified, and counted guilty and accursed, not for his sake, but for our sake. This means that when we read that God gave his only son, we should think immediately of the cross where Jesus suffered and died 
that we might be forgiven of our sins. So great is his love that if our redemption from sin required the torturous death of his only son, even the outpouring of his own wrath on his beloved child, God was willing to give him for this purpose. Jeremiah Burroughs, another 17th century Puritan preacher, says, Behold the infinite love of God to mankind and the love of Jesus Christ, that rather than God see the children of men to perish, eternally he would send his Son to take our nature upon him and thus suffer such dreadful things. Herein God shows his love. It pleased the Father to break his Son and to pour out his blood. Here is the love of God and of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a powerful, mighty, drawing, efficacious meditation this should be to us. God's gift, therefore, is not only infinite in value, but is also perfectly suited to our greatest need. Here again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. According to Pastor Phillips, whenever the New Testament speaks of God's love, it invariably, almost always, does so in the terms of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. This then is how the world knows God's love and receives God's love. Not because we are able to love one another, not even a little bit, but because there is beauty in the world, no, but because God sent Jesus to die for our sins. That's the reason. John writes in his first epistle, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world. He loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation, an appeasement for our sins. Again, the Puritan John Flavel um, did a study on John 3.16, and he made several key observations. First, he says that the verse shows us the exceeding preciousness of souls. Um, and that at what high rate God values them, that he gave his only son out of his bosom as ransom for these souls. Surely this argues that God, having given his only son for saving souls, that we ought to labor with all our might to bring the good news of salvation to the world. Not to ensure anything by our own works, but to share the gospel. It is through our witness, empowered by the effective call of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, um, <clears throat> and through his word, that we and they are able to believe. Guided by the Holy Spirit is because we take an interest in their souls, because we speak earnestly about them, uh, to them about Jesus, and because we invite them to join us at church or be a part of our lives and hear God's word that souls are saved every day, and they are no different. Second, Flavel notes, since God has given us his Son, we may be confident of receiving every other help and mercy we need to endure this life and arrive safely into heaven. Knowing this should give us peace at every storm, confidence in the face of life's trials. <clears throat> Knowing how much God has already given us, his very best in the person of his own son, we should trust his love and come to him with, his holy, with a holy boldness in prayer. 
Paul reasoned in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things that we need? God will not withhold anything that's needed, having already given his son, so we should not shrink back from asking him for, confidently awaiting anything that we truly need. Third, Flavel observes, If the greatness of love has manifested in giving Christ to the world, then it follows that the greatest evil and wickedness is manifested in despising, slighting, and rejecting Christ. There can be no greater condemnation for hearts than for us to disregard this amazing love of God and giving His Son to suffer in our place. So what? What does God ask in, in return? What does He ask of us? Well, He demands that we love always. God lo- demands that love always desires to be received. Jesus said in John 6, This is the work of God that you may believe in Him who He sent, that we would believe that. John 3.16's message is that God calls us to believe in one Jesus Christ, to receive this love gift through personal faith in Jesus. If we believe, we are promised eternal life. But if we are so hardened of heart to refuse this matchless gift, the result is that we would perish. Those who have spurned God's love on the cross must receive the just penalty for the sins and especially for the chief sin of rejecting Christ. As the writer of Hebrew warns, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? On the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website, there's a story I like to recite in closing. It says, shortly after the end of the Civil War, a man in, a farm, in farm clothes was seen kneeling at a gravestone in a soldier cemetery in Nashville. An observer came up and asked, Is that the grave of your son? The farmer replied, No, I have seven children, all of them very young, and a wife on my poor farm in Illinois. I was drafted, and despite the great hardship it would have caused, I was required to join the army. But on the morning I was to depart, this man, my neighbor's older son, came over and offered to take my place in the war. The observer solemnly asked, Well, what is that you're writing on his grave? Farmer replied, I am writing, he died for me. There's one further application for those who believe in Christ and those who are thus born again. If God loved us by giving his only son, we ought to love him and we ought to uh, give praise for all that we have in return. Like the farmer in the story, we should make an effort to serve the Lord and give a testimony of his love for us. We should further express our devotion by loving others with the same kind of love that God has shown to us. We are to show a love that the world does not know, a love not based on getting, not one that seeks mainly for ourselves, but a love that says, God has given to me, so I want to love him by giving to others. And this giving love should beautify our marriages should enliven our friendships, but ultimately should glorify God in the church and in the world. This is John's own application in his first epistle, having spoken first of God's love for us in giving of his son. Beloved, if God so loved us, also ought we to love one another. 
This love, this faith in Christ, comes not from within ourselves, but from God. We had this in the New Testament reading, but I'm going to read it again. This is one of my favorite verses, or sets of verses. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is of the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. Our faith, our good works are not from us. They are from God through his grace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's live out God's amazing love as did Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's move forward trusting in Him, relying on the Holy Spirit, loving God and others today and for eternity. This will be our strongest testimony to a loveless world, so that others will learn of God's amazing love for us, and that by believing, by believing in Him, they too, they will have eternal life. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this message. Lord, we thank you most of all for your love gift of Jesus Christ, that we have him to to believe in, to rely on, and your Holy Spirit to help us do so is an immeasurable grace, amazing love. So, Father, as we come near the end of the service today, we just pray that as we leave, that, um, that we would be your light in the world to bring the gospel to all who don't believe and to be an example for all who do, to gird them up and to come alongside them as we work together for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.